Hey, deserving listeners, I thought I would answer patron emails today. This first email is from an anonymous patron. She writes, on the podcast recently, you have mentioned your previous work with individuals convicted of domestic violence. So just chiming in here, I have, if you don't know, I've been doing these YouTube videos reacting to a reality TV show and looking at a relationship with allegations on one of the uh, individuals that he has been uh, violent with three past intimate partners. So I think maybe that's what they're uh, talking about. So you, back to the email. You have mentioned your previous work with individuals convicted of domestic violence. So again, <laughs> just chiming in here. Yeah, uh, years ago, I worked at a agency in which I treated domestic violence perpetrators and the victims. And in group therapy, these people were convicted of a crime and were forced into domestic violence treatment. And it was very eye-opening to me because I had all the normal stereotypes of these sorts of people. And it was interesting to see them, or at least most of them, grow uh, during the year-long mandatory treatment uh, protocol. Going on with the email. We have seen uh, increased rates in this behavior during COVID. And I am curious if you would consider a podcast on this topic. I would be curious about your response to statements that detract from responsibility. And she, so she gives a number of different uh, statements that domestic violence abusers will typically invoke to invoke, evoke, invoke to uh, deny responsibility. So I'm just going to go one by one here. The first one is it takes two to tango. So abusers will sometimes use this phrase, by the way, Trigger alert, if you are um, sensitive to this information, you should be careful. So statements like, it takes two to tango. This is a common belief in society that has some merit some of the time. As a systems thinker, I, will, I, I often think this way, that in common conflicts in couples or in any relationship, it, take, it takes two to tango is a pretty good way of looking at it instead of blaming one side or the other. If you hear me talk about relationships and conflict, you'll often hear me talk about that, in that each person is causing the other person's behavior unknowingly, and the behavior they're causing the other person is in turn triggering them to continue in the behavior. Like a common example, so getting away from a domestic violent relationships, I'll get back to that in a second, but just to explain systems theory is say you feel like your partner is moving away from you so you pursue and and they and your partner keeps moving further and further away from you and it and so it feels like it's your partner's fault that the that your relationship is going down the tubes because your partner is moving away from you but if we talk to your partner they might say my my partner keeps invading my space and I keep having to move further and further away from them in order to retain my own space in this relationship, in order to retain my own freedom. And I don't, I don't understand why they just keep invading my space. And so each person, because they're reacting to the other person, is inadvertently causing the behavior that they don't want. So as that person moves away, it causes the other person to pursue. As one person pursues, it causes the other person to move away. It's a very common uh, scenario. So abusers will sometimes use this notion, which is actually you know, a pretty accurate notion a lot of the times, 
that is saying, well, it takes two to tango, meaning that, well, sure, I got violent, but it's only because it takes two to tango. The, the, the victim or my partner, I only beat them because they provoked me or they got in my face or they said the things that they know is going to cause me to be violent or whatever it was. And yeah, this is this is a common denial of responsibility that you will hear. And it's a common belief that upholds the abuse. A lot of these. So one way of thinking about it, and of course, it's not really this, but one way of thinking about abuse cycle or the personality or the defense mechanisms at play in the abuser is that of addiction. When you are having problematic use and you're deep in it, you go into a lot of mental gymnastics to uphold your abuse of that substance. You might, you know, if someone drinks every day to cope and they don't think they have any any other way of coping, they might say something like, well, I'm only drinking beer most of the time or everyone drinks wine with dinner. It's not a big deal. Or, you know, it's not, I'm not using hard drugs or, you know, I'll quit. It's, I could quit at any time. You know, there's all sorts of things that people will say as a way of trying to shield themselves from really the acknowledgement that is hard to deny, which is that they have a problem. And so people who are abusers typically will go into those mental gymnastics as well for, for a variety of reasons. Now, I will say that there is a class of abuser that is a psychopath who doesn't really care about human beings and is a particular different class of human being. But most people aren't like that. I think the average rate of psychopathy in the general population is something 1%. So it's a pretty rare condition. So most of the time, abusers aren't psychopaths. So meaning that they do care about other human beings, meaning that they do have the same capacity for love and affection and warmth and empathy as anyone else does. So why would they do this? Well, generally speaking, without getting too too much into it because of time constraints for me right now, because I want to get to other emails, is in my experience, it was early attachment injury that was uh, sufficient to create the uh, attachment and personality characteristics that can lead to severe emotional reactions in relationships, severe negative emotional reactions, matched up with entitlement and uh, essentially sexism or or just general entitlement. Because to be clear, now m- most abusers are men, but but many abusers are women, and in fact. So all abuse generally goes untreated, goes unnoticed, goes unprosecuted. But when it comes to women abusers, they go particularly untreated. So without going into all the details, with a lot of the male perpetrators that I would treat, a significant amount of our time and treatment was spent on dismantling sexist notions that they had internalized from culture and from their families and often from their fathers. So we would spend a lot of time on that. And that was a major factor and force in the perpetuation of the violence. Because the violence, sometimes people will phrase it as an anger management problem, but it's not an anger management. Anger management, emotional regulation is definitely part of the problem. But often what you would find in intimate partner violence perpetrators, domestic violence perpetrators, 
that their violence was really relegated and isolated to their romantic partner. When they were at work, when they were at a restaurant, when they were with their friends, they didn't exhibit the same sort of violence. They were only or primarily violent or particularly violent with their romantic partner. And so why would that be? That's not an anger management problem. Presumably they get angry in, in various different um, arenas. The issue was often this belief system that they were entitled to put hands on. And again, often that was sexism. Now, how do we apply that notion of entitlement to female perpetrators? Well, it's sort of case by case basis, but a lot of times it might be related to just modeling. They might have seen violence in, in their families perpetrated by any one of their uh, family members. Uh, they might also believe that putting hands on as a female is seen as okay. Because we actually, a lot of times, will normalize female uh, women putting hands on and being violent with their partners. There's research that shows that it, when you give someone a scenario where a man is being violent with his wife, whereas a, in another situation, another scenario where a wife is being violent with her husband, that people will see the man being violent as a problem and the woman being violent as expressing her needs or something like this. And of course, it's it's not always that way, but... We do have a problem with this. In fact, we still see jokes being made about women beating their husbands and, as, and played for laughs, like, it, like it's this really funny thing. And, and we need to stop that because there are many, many, many heterosexual relationships in which the wife is the one doing the violence. Now, with women, it's often not necessarily entirely violent. And the abuse... Uh, repertoire, if you will, uh, for any gender isn't isn't just violence. It's also coercion, it's intimidation, it's threats, it's explosiveness, it's making everyone walk on eggshells, particularly your romantic partner, it's financial control, it's isolation, it's sometimes related to brainwashing techniques to break the other person down to make them feel lesser and worthless. So it there's a lot of different elements to it. And some relationships involve all of them, some relationships involve some of them to differing degrees. And so we just have to um, uh, keep all that in mind. And, and that so that's the bit. So there's that entitlement piece, and which is often related to sexist notions. And that's and because we socialize men to be more superior and more in control of women, we see more rates of violence from from men to women. The other component is attachment issues, which you'll hear me talk a lot about on the podcast, which is that perpetrators tend to have tremendous attachment difficulties growing up. Abandonment, parents who were abusive, parents who were using substances, uh, foster care, adoption, um, sexual violence, witnessing domestic violence, criminal activity, these sorts of things. And the child will grow up, one, being modeled uh, abusive behavior as a way of dealing with your 
feelings and two, with just an enormous amount of worry about abandonment. Everyone wants attachment. Everyone wants closeness. Everyone wants warmth and security and loyalty and longevity of a relationship. And all of us have a style of dysfunctional way of dealing with things when we feel like that attachment is being threatened. And for those who commit abuse crimes, they were, for whatever reason, they have developed a way of coping with attachment worries with violence. The wife comes home late from work and the husband, who is the abusive one, is uh, deep down as a primary emotion worried that his wife is going to leave him and and the reason why she came home late from work is that she was falling in love with someone else or having sex with someone else or something like that and the way he deals with that hurt and that worry which is uh, uh, understandable for especially if you've had relational traumas in the past abandonment abuse this sort of thing the way you, some people deal with that is, you know, they'll distance or they will um, be nice about it. Or, you know, there's a number of different ways one can react to that or they'll just suppress it or they'll or they will um, just reassure themselves. A lot of different ways of coping with that worry, like, oh, my spouse is coming home late from work. They haven't called me. I, I wonder where they're at. Well, to the abuser, they, for whatever reason, they developed a way of coping with that as a way of controlling their spouse. They feel that hurt, whether they know it or not, whether they're consciously aware of it or not. They, they feel that worry and that hurt about their spouse, and they immediately go to, I am going to make sure she never does this again. I am going to, uh, you know, whether whether she, when she gets home, I'm gonna I'm going to make sure one way or another that this never happens again. And if she doesn't listen to me, I'm going to escalate it. I'm going to go up the ladder. And if that means putting hands on, if that means being violent, then that's just what it means. Because that's the way you deal with things. That's how I deal with things. That's the way my parents dealt with things. And that's the way people in my community would deal with things. And I'm not going to be made a fool. I'm not going to be disrespected. I deserve better. I am the man of the house or whatever whatever it is that notions that uphold the patriarchy in that relationship or the power structure. So getting back to the original uh, statement that would detract from responsibility that the anonymous patron wrote in, it, it takes two to tango. So with systems theory, we do apply it takes two to tango in responsible ways. But and, – and I always actually talk about this with my students. I'll, I'll teach them systems theory and essentially it takes two to tango. But then I always quickly say this theory is only as useful as it is helpful. And there are some scenarios in which this theory is not helpful. Uh, i.e. abusive relationships, because to apply systems theory, i.e. it takes two to tango, to an abusive relationship, it it uh, implies that the victim is 50% responsible for the abuse dynamic, of, of which that would be abhorrent and, and an idea that actually perpetuates the abuse and is sexist often, or at least anti-victim. And so we... Uh, systems theory can help us understand how the 
uh, abuse happens, but it doesn't deny a hundred percent. I mean, abusers, to be clear, are a hundred percent responsible for their behavior. It just it just is. Uh, now we can explain the dynamic in a systemic way, but when one person has so much power and so much agency, and the other person has so little agency and so little power, then we need to address the person who is exerting that power. For example, as a quick litmus test to see if it takes two to tango is a valid way of looking at it would be, well, if one person changes their behavior, then it will change the other person's behavior. So going back to the pursuer distancer, if either person stops what they're doing, it will stop the dynamic. If the distancer stops distancing, it'll stop the pursuer from pursuing. If the pursuer stops pursuing, it'll stop the distancer from distancing. But when we look at an abusive relationship, if the abuser stops abusing, then it will stop the victim from victiming, <laughs> meaning that the victim will feel bad and hurt and those kinds of things. Whereas if we say, if the victim stops acting like a victim, will that stop the abusing? No, <laughs> uh, because uh, any of you who has been who have been in an abusive relationship, high control relationship, can attest to the abuser will just whittle you down slowly but surely, and there's no end to it. There, there, you know, and that's often the dilemma for the the victim is these micro moments where. You might say, well, okay, fine. I'll give in on this issue. It's not right that I'm giving in on or I don't, I don't think I should give in on this issue, but I just don't want to fight with them anymore. I just, I just, want, I just want them to calm down. So I'll, I'll give in now, but that's as far as I go. But then you just keep doing that, and after 10 years, the abuser has whittled your life down to this tiny little nub where you are... You don't have any friends. You don't have any contact with your family. You might not ever leave the house. You, you have terrible self-esteem. You think you deserve all of the abuse that's happening. And so we can't look at that as a 50-50 scenario, obviously. So it takes two to tango is a, is a come. Now, getting back to why would an abuser come up with these notions? I was saying, you know, it's, it's, it's the addiction. Well, to the abuser, and this is my model, by the way, not, not, in fact, I don't hear a lot of people in the domestic violence field speaking the way that I do. Uh, I have, um, because I'm so attachment oriented, my, my language tends to be in, in that arena. So to, to, similar to the way someone who suffers from alcohol addiction will need alcohol to function with life, they're self-medicating. The abuser needs violence to um, mitigate their attachment worries. They don't, they don't realize that the violence is extremely suboptimal to other ways of coping with attachment. But, but the abuser believes that the only way for them to get their attachment needs met is to, uh, is to be violent and, and to be controlling and to be intimidating. They were modeled that way, or they just learned that through experience, or they were taught that they were entitled to that, or there was something around that. Who knows? But the they do this violence because they don't know any other way to get their attachment needs met. Again, I'm talking about the 99% of people who are non-psychopaths. So 
when we have attachment injuries, we will resort to a set of coping skills. Uh, for me, for example, since I have been through a lot of therapy and therapized myself quite a bit and am in a pretty good marriage, I would like to think <laughs> when I have an attachment injury, I will uh, sort of isolate and I will think about it and I, it sort of rattles around in my head. There's various different thoughts that happen in my head, usually not very functional at first. And so I, I try not to be in, I try not to be in communication with the person that hurt me, you know, with like, for example, my wife right away, because I'm, I know from experience, I might say something stupid right away. And so I isolate, I think about it, and then I very quickly try to f find a road to understanding the situation from her point of view and try to understand the what had happened that upset me. I'm trying to understand it from my point of view and from her point of view because usually that helps me to calm down. Um, because if I just see it from my point of view, then I tend to uh, be more hurt, essentially, because... I, if I only see it from my point of view, then it feels bad to me. Whereas if I understand it from her point of view, then I'm like, oh, you know what? I was probably provoking her. I was probably being, you know, and then she interpreted it this way, which makes sense. And then she did that. And then, and then I very quickly try to apologize if I said anything stupid or try, I try some sort of, um, you know, return to balance and compassion or, uh, or goodness in our relationship. Me, I might text my wife or I might talk to her or whatever it is. Okay, so so did I come out of the womb with that way of dealing with attachment injury? No. I learned this. I, I was, it was modeled to me. I learned it in therapy. I tried it out. I learned it, obviously, as a couples therapist. I, uh, you know, teach it. So, so this is something that I... Uh, and and I've practiced. Me and my wife have practiced over the years, uh, doing various different things, trial and error, figuring out how each of us operate. So that's my way of dealing with attachment injury. Well, for some people, they don't have that uh, functional way, or they have very limited ways of dealing with their attachment injury. It just so happens that some people deal with it through violence. Now, some of you might uh, be upset that this proposes this empathetic notion or compassionate notion towards abusers. Well, that's up to you. I, what all I'm doing is providing an explanation of which I have found to be true. I have treated abusers of various uh, kinds, various types, and I've always found, and it's just my, my work, that it comes from attachment injury. And that when I get, when I get to that core and I get them to recognize their attachment needs and how they can deal with their attachment needs in a more functional way, I know we're on a road to wellness. Now, it doesn't necessarily end the abuse. Just knowing that is, is one step along the way, but habit is a, is a problem. And people who are habitually coercive and um, they 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 will often return to a very negative way of seeing their partner and a coercive way of acting towards that partner. Well-intentioned people uh, who are smart and caring 
will sometimes return to that abusive behavior because it's so habitual and it's so ingrained in their brain and it was so taught to them growing up that it's it's hard for them to even recognize in the moment that they are being abusive is the, is the problem. So a lot of my work with abusers had to do with a lot of those elements. Anyway, so yeah, uh, it takes two to tango, det- detracts from responsibility and it upholds the power structure and makes it so that the abuser can continue abusing, essentially continuing to rely on their extremely destructive and dysfunctional way of coping with attachment injury. Uh, Another one she provided here in the email was, he or she, the victim, pushes my buttons. You know, she pushes, you know, I I only abuse her because she pushes my buttons. No, this is a common belief system almost universally I would find that perpetrators would have these narratives that the incident in question that got them thrown into, uh, you know, by law (laughs) into my therapy group, they would have a narrative along these lines. Well, she did this and I did this. And, and it was interesting because when I first started treating them, since I'm, I'm kind of a trusting fellow, I tended to believe them. I knew in my mind, I was like, well, there's probably another side of the story. And this is earlier on in my career, so I wasn't really quite as awake as I am now. But over time, because the therapy group would last for a year, usually about six months in, the narrative would be extremely different because we would have to go back to, okay, the incident that you got convicted of, of, you know, assault, you know, of the second degree or whatever it was, third degree, fourth degree. Let's review what happened. Let's review the narrative because that's a big part of it. A big part of their, the markers of them moving through the treatment program was for them to have a functional narrative of what happened. And when they first would come in, it was, well, it takes two to tango. She pushed my buttons. Uh, She was violent too, these kinds of things. And to be clear, there are situations where both people are violent and both people are being coercive. But in the people that we're talking about right now, where it's abusive relationships, um, that that is something that will be used as an excuse. And so six months in or so, hopefully, the narrative will have changed to she was just trying to defend herself and I was losing control and I didn't know how to communicate my feelings and I put hands on because that's what my dad taught me that it was okay to do those sorts of things. So uh, the push, the, the pushing of the buttons thing was something I almost always saw in perpetrators when they first came in. Another statement she writes here is I just snapped this idea of like, you know, I, it was just a momentary loss of control Now, this can happen to some people, but when we're looking at an overall pattern of high control, coercive, abusive relationship, it is not the narrative that I would apply that someone just snapped, given that they quote unquote snap frequently. And they, uh, to a lesser degree, are frequently being coercive and angry and intimidating in just everyday life. 
So this notion that they just have some sort of explosive issue. Now, some people do. We have diagnoses for such things in the DSM. Some people have mood issues that cause them to quote unquote snap and can be very intimidating to other people. And maybe we conceptualize it that way. But typically to the abusive pattern uh, for a lot of the abusers, they'll, they'll have these kinds of, of uh, narratives. Now, I will say that some people will look at abusers and, and they'll say like, well, they're gaslighting. They are lying. They're pathological liars. The, these people have big problems. Well, again, let's go to our uh, neighboring concept of addiction. When someone was traumatized, has PTSD, and the only way they, can, they found that they can cope is to numb out through alcohol. And they start to develop these very weird ways of looking at the world. Like, well, everyone drinks six beers a night, or it's just beer, or I deserved it, or in the restaurant industry, you know, say they work in the restaurant injury, industry, everyone who works in the restaurant injury, injury, <laughs> everyone works, everyone who works in the restaurant industry work, uh, drinks. Let's try to, let's try that again. The person is working in the restaurant industry and they say everyone who works in restaurants drink, you know, the, these kinds of statements. So for them, especially if you're being affected by them, you might have a similar point of view of like, they're just lying to themselves on purpose. But I think we might be able to narrativize that differently in such a way of saying that the person is really struggling and they don't have any way of uh, any other way of coping. And their brain is just trying to preserve their way of coping. And there's this, co there's this cognitive dissonance that's happening in their brain of like, you are an alcoholic. There's a definite voice in their mind that's, that's telling them that. But there's a stronger voice that's saying, you don't understand, I need alcohol. And so that voice that is telling me I'm an alcoholic, that voice has to go away. And the only way it's going to go away if, is if I prop up all these notions that are spinning uh, the data to fit the narrative that everything's okay. Because that's the only way that I'm going to be able to, you know, go get through the day. A, a similar thing happened in society in the American South when slavery was legal, that there was a cognitive dissonance. There were many, many white people who uh, believed that slavery was wrong. Even slave owners were, were conflicted. Many of them were. Uh, they were, you know, this, this, these are human beings. This, this can't be right. We're supposed to be good Christian people. This, this doesn't make any sense. But their economy depended on the slave labor and their way of life completely depended on it. So uh, there, was a, there was that dissonance. In order for me to pay the bills, in order for me to have this house, in order for me to have financial stability, I need, uh, I need slaves. But there's another part of me that believes that slaves are bad. So what do we do? Well, we have to devise a narrative, a thinking scheme, a spin of the data to get by. Well, what, what do we do? Well, a major component of the spinning of the data is to say that black people aren't really humans, that they are subhuman. They're more like animals or Black people, people stolen from Africa, are uh, inferior-minded, and so they need our help, or you know things like that. And and then you codify that into law. You pass that down from generation to generation, and you have 
American society today, <laughs> by the way. So cognitive dissonance, you, you get into a dilemma. And so if you are a, a person who has habitual abusive tactics, you're at a dilemma. Part of you has empathy and is, and, and is worried that you're doing something wrong. Another part of you believes that the only way for you to attain any kind of relational success and closeness is through abuse, is through control. Now, you don't frame it as control in your mind. You frame it as being assertive or not being respected. And so you have cognitive, cognitive dissonance. What do I do there? One has to win. You're in a dilemma. If I believe, if, if I go with my empathy... Then I go. Then I'm alone. That's the belief that it's it's false, but that's how they believe how things are go. That how things are going to go. Um, my my feelings of attachment, worry, and hurt are going to be ignored because I have no other way of communicating that. Because the only way I can communicate that is through violence and intimidation. So I'm either going to be alone, or uh, I'm, I can I can retain my empathy and my humanity and be alone, or I can forego my humanity and 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 get closeness with other people. Of course, it's false closeness because the other person is just terrified to, to, to leave you. So it's a, it, in all these circumstances, in my way of telling the story of humanity, is that it's a slow, semi-conscious process. And by the time you emerge on the other side, you're, you fully brainwashed yourself to, the, to, the, uh, to, the, to these spinning of the truths spinnings of the truth. And so you are responsible for it, but not entirely because it's hard for you to realize another reality. And so uh, the therapy that I would do for these people involves a kind of a deprogramming of brainwashing that they've done to themselves or that they learned from their families. These notions of entitlement, these notions of well, how else am I supposed to communicate that I'm upset? Or I'm just, I'm just telling you my feelings. That's a common phrase from abusers. Well, what, I'm, I'm not allowed to express my feelings? You know, these, these kinds of things. So another statement that she writes in here is that abusers will sometimes say is, I keep attracting crazy partners. For example, men who have abused in a number of relationships they will have that narrative. I keep I keep attracting crazy partners. Again, this is another common belief. I, I don't know if I saw it as common as the other ones, but yeah, it denies responsibility, and it can feel that way. All these things, it can feel that way. It can feel like it. I just snapped. It can feel that way to the abuser. It can feel like there's the victim is the crazy person to them. It can feel like the victim is the one pushing the abuser's buttons. It, it can feel that way to them. It, it's not as if they're necessarily lying that way. It can be very much in, in line with how they see the world. Of course, it's it's not fair and it's it's flat rid, ridiculous in a lot of ways. Anyway, another uh, statement here that abusers will sometimes say is they'll blame the system. For example, the police only charge the man even though she has used abusive behavior as well. So the anonymous patron provides that one. Yeah. So there's nuance here. Um, 
the first thing I'll say is absolutely abusers will sometimes blame the system. They'll say, oh, sure. Yeah. When the, you know, and I would hear this a lot from the perpetrators in treatment is they would say, well, you know, the way our snowflake system works that uh, there was violence between me and her. And of course they got to handcuff the man, which is me. And so both of us should have been in jail, but they arrested me. So a lot of the times what we would find is by the end of the treatment or midway through the treatment, they would have changed their tune. Uh, not, uh, you know, not necessarily because we're coercing them to do it, but because they, through the treatment, would learn better ways of thinking and acting and, and would have this new narrative that, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, they might say, yeah, my wife was being kind of violent, I would say, but I was being much more systematically violent with her. I was being much more angry and much more intimidating. And yeah, when she gets frustrated, sometimes she, she slaps me and this sort of thing. But, but overall, I was the one who was being the violent one. So, you know, cause the thing is, is if you, if you beat someone, say, say a man beats his wife and intimidates her frequently well, it stands to reason that the victim sometimes is going to lose her crap and come out swinging and slapping, you know? Uh, so so the abuser sometimes will just say, look, see, we both are violent. So therefore, uh, everything is equal. Um, so there, there's that. And uh, uh, so they will often blame the system and say, oh, it's, it's not really me. It's just the snowflake police, that sort of thing. Now, I'll also say that there is nuance here because in a lot of, uh, I can't remember the exact statistics, but I remember reading research that pointed to this, this notion that when the police show up, a lot of times they will assume the man is the one that's doing the perpetrating. Now, a lot of times it is the man in a heterosexual relationship, but there are times when it is mutual and or when it is the woman in the heterosexual relationship. And so there there are there is some truth to that. Now, in an individual case-by-case basis, yes, there are certainly a lot of uh, flat-out abusers who are using the system blaming as a way of per, of upholding their power and their entitlement. Um, but at the same time, there is some legitimacy to the general statement that the system is uh, somewhat generally, on average, ignorant of female perpetrators. All right, so I talked for a lot longer than I thought I was going to talk about that. Uh, let's take a break and we get back. Let's get to some more emails. All right, we're back from the break. Today's sponsor is geared towards you clinicians out there. Many of you clinicians have emailed me asking questions about how to build your practice. Well, there's a solution. Online therapy. And that's where BetterHelp comes in. If you're interested in building an online practice, go to betterhelp.com slash in Seattle to get started. Make sure you use the slash in Seattle because that helps us out. So betterhelp.com slash in Seattle if you're a clinician looking to get set up with BetterHelp. Research shows that people are increasingly turning to online therapy for various reasons, many of which we can think of, including the current pandemic. 
Research also shows that online therapy can be an effective way of helping people. Sometimes people ask me that. It's like, well, is online therapy, does it work? And the research generally shows that it, it can work uh, as effectively as in-person therapy. There are nuances, but um, it, it definitely has a chance of, of helping for sure. I have colleagues and supervisees who love doing this sort of work, and they, they like it because they have more freedom, they get to work when they want to, they can travel more, these kinds of things. Uh, you, you get to uh, contact more people more readily, BetterHelp just gets you clients, that sort of thing. So if you're interested, I would say it's definitely worth checking out. Also, I've been told by BetterHelp that they take care of a lot of the business stuff for you, like, for example, getting clients, which is a big deal. Also, they apparently take care of your billing and insurance and that sort of thing. So go to BetterHelp.com slash in Seattle to get started. That's BetterHelp.com slash in Seattle. All right. This next email is from patron Alexis. She writes, since the pandemic started, I've been staying with my partner's family. It's been interesting. Since arriving, I feel like I am almost in a role of an armchair family therapist. Part of it has been me just feeling the anxiety of the family tensions and having the impulse to Alexis explain a better way to approach conflict. As far as family dynamics go, I feel like their family is one of the healthiest I've witnessed, definitely far healthier than my own family of origin. But sometimes I feel this anxiety and a little bit of sadness as to the way they occasionally perceive each other and the situation. Sometimes they literally call upon me to help them with their relationship. I constantly find myself wishing they would let me mediate. So basically, what she, I, I'm not reading her whole, whole email, but she basically talks about how there are times when they ask her to get involved in the family dynamic, and there are other times when she feels very compelled to get involved and they don't ask her. So she asks, what is, your, what is my own psychological what is, the, what is up with the psychological impulse to play the fixer in this family? Anyway, that's it for now, and I'm looking forward to the live show. End of email. Yeah. In case you don't know, we have a live YouTube uh, live show coming up, a live live show. August 8th, 2020, it's our 12th year anniversary. We are celebrating 12 years of podcasting, me and Umberto. And we're going to podcast on YouTube for 12 hours straight. So join us there. We are going to be talking about all sorts of things and having all sorts of fun. And you can participate in the chat and that kind of thing. So go to YouTube. And August 8th, we're going to go from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. Seattle time. So getting back to patron Alexis's question. Well, it sounds to me, Alexis, like you're a little worried that you're overstepping your boundaries and that in, in that you are kind of like a family therapist. And in your longer email, you talked about how you've learned a lot from this podcast and it's helped you to see patterns as they're coming. And the thing I'll say is to it seems to me that at least some of the time, the family really likes it when you're involved. They reach out to you. So if you don't mind being involved, then you, you're, you know, you, you're in a unique position to help because you, you don't come from this family and maybe you have a better way of seeing the situation. That's what family therapy is. The other uh, thing I'll say is that I would ask people when there isn't a problem and you know, you're not in the middle of a problem, I would ask people, say, you might just say, so... 
I feel like sometimes I want to chime in and help people out because it hurts to it hurts me to see other people hurting in this family. And so, do you want me to Alexa explain things, or would you rather I just stayed out of it? Or if I if you want me to get involved, how would you like me to get involved? That's just a wonderful question to ask. The other question to ask is. Are you burdened? Are you burdened with too much of the responsibility? Because certainly, uh, you deserve to just be a normal human being and not have to constantly be the family therapist for everybody. So those are the questions I would ask. But it sounds like some of the time uh, they do want you to get involved, and you are helpful, and you you don't mind doing it. So uh, there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with being a helpful family member. It it feels like armchair family therapist to you, but in the way I would put it is you're just being a helpful family member. Nothing wrong with that at all. You're not over, you know, stepping your boundaries or your limitations, unless other people in the family are saying, yeah, you're a little invasive, your advice is a little dumb or <laughs> unappreciated or something, then yeah, then you should then you should think about that. But if things are going well, then, you know. What a wonderful opportunity this this whole family has to have such a smart person helping them. All right, let's go on to another email. Okay, this next email is from Anxious Emma. She writes, When it comes to issues of sex and gender, how do I stay true to my Christian beliefs while also being kind and respectful to those around me who believe differently than I do? My desire is to fight for human rights of LGBTQ people to truly listen to their experiences, to believe their experiences, to use language that makes them feel comfortable, and to treat them with all the dignity that humans created in God's image deserve. However, if a gay or trans person directly asks me my opinion about their sexual behavior, I would have to tell them that I disagree with their lifestyle. Is there room for me to be kind, to give dignity to all people, and still disagree with them? End of email. It's a great question, Anxious Emma, and the way you're asking it proves to me that you are a kind person. So, I have been in a lot of debates with people about this issue. Actually, the person who is somewhat responsible for me starting this podcast is a therapist friend of mine that I grew up with. We grew up together, and we both became therapists, and he is famous for doing conversion therapy. <laughs> he, in other words, he's a Christian therapist who works on helping gay people not be gay anymore. And he himself talks about his own gay impulses and how he has used therapy and faith to cure himself of this. So I have had... Uh, and he and he, I consider him to be a close friend. And I mean, we don't talk so much anymore because we live in different states and whatnot. But but we were close um, enough to have some very intense arguments about this issue. And the reason why he's somewhat responsible for me starting this podcast is because I randomly had this idea uh, this um, twelve years ago in the summer of two thousand eight about starting a podcast because I was listening to so many podcasts at the time. And I thought, hey, maybe I'll just start a psychology podcast. And I went to lunch with him 
and asked because because he was big in the media because he was actually famous on TV shows and the internet for being a successful conversion therapist in the Christian in a certain corner of the Christian community online. And I I asked him about like media because I didn't know anything about it. And he, and he was very encouraging and he he said you know you you're going to do great and. And I think, you know, he his encouragement was part of the reason why I started this podcast. But anyway, so in all of my debates with him, uh, which I won't go into detail, it always boiled down to one question, anxious Emma. And this is what and any of you out there who believe uh, as a regardless of what religion you're a part of or even you know separate from religion, if you believe that LGBTQ people are human beings, but they're doing something wrong or there's something pathological about what they're doing. Uh, but particularly for you religious people, the question, the central question is, are they sinning? That was the question that it always boiled down to. Because when I would talk to, if you live in a, in a, so it's a, you know, there are particular sects of Christianity, particular, you know, groups, offshoots or, you know, subgroups of Christianity that believe that LGBTQ people are doing something wrong. I mean, just looking at the way you phrased it here is, you know, that you you use the phrase that you disagree with them. So anxious Emma, you say, I disagree with LGBTQ people. I disagree with their lifestyle. So you'll hear all these kinds of phrases in the in these uh, in this particular subculture of Christianity, I want to say subculture because there are many Christians who believe that LGBT, LGBTQ people are not sinning and are, God created them that way. So including a lot of the Christians in Seattle, which is where I live. Now, there are certainly a lot of people who, in Seattle, Christians who don't believe that, but but I would say that a good number within Seattle proper uh, do. Uh, so I just want to keep saying that. So, but when because I've had these arguments with people, for example, my friend um, Jason, and the the things that they there, there's all these things they'll throw out. And I wish I had it in front of me, but it, there's all these you know obviously Bible verses. There are anecdotes of. Uh, you know, people who will convert away from being gay to being straight and how much they love their life. And there'll be concerns about parenting, which of course is not empirically supported. There are references to the way nature created people and all these kinds of things, all of which has a lot of dubiousness to it. But, and then we would debate that we'd debate all those finer points. We wouldn't really see eye to eye, but then I, you know, I remember when I was deba- debating, his name's Jason Graves. You can actually look him up. And when I, 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 we were going back and forth and finally I just said, Hey, I think what it just comes down to Jason is I don't believe that being gay is a sin. And I think you do. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? And he would sort of dance around that because there's something weird about some of these Christians that I've debated with where they don't like to really boil it down to the foundation of their belief system, which is that being gay is a sin, that it's against God's will, and that God doesn't want you to do that. And I don't know why they dance around that. Maybe it feels like hubris to know the will of God or something, but of course that's what they're operating from. And so 
I would, uh, you know, I boiled it down to that. And he's like, yeah, I, I guess I do believe it's a sin. And I, and I would say, well, that, that's, there's a debate there because there are many Christians who don't believe it's a sin. And who's right? Well, no one's right because no one knows the word of God. Everyone is looking at the same Bible. Everyone's looking at the same history. Everyone's looking into their hearts in this, you know, individually in the, probably the same ways. And they're coming out with different answers. Some Christians believe that being gay, being trans, being bisexual, being queer is a sin. And other Christians are coming to a conclusion based on the same data that it's not a sin, that it's the way that God made them. And that's just the way it's going to be. <laughs> but the way that the arguments get played out, it gets played out like it's some empirical fact. Like, well, of course they're, they're sinning because blah, 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 and they'll have all this data. But, you know, it's, it's a belief system. And when you understand that it's a belief, it's just a faith, then, then you're just sort of stuck. But the question that I'll, that I'll ask you, Anxious Emma, and any other of you out there that hold Anxious Emma's opinions, is to really search your heart for what a sin means. And what is God trying to tell you about sin? For many people, the central feature of what God is trying to tell people about sin is that it is purposely harm, you know, a sin is to purposely harm something or someone or yourself or something. That it is, you know, to kill common sins that are obvious are murder, theft, violence, intimidation, uh, taking from the poor, not giving to the poor. When someone is thirsty and you don't give someone a drink of water, that is sinning. It's pretty easy to understand. It's, so how does LGBTQ people fit into that? Now, if you just, now, if you believe that gay people are sinning, then you, know, you, you can believe that. That's a belief system. But I, I challenge you to evaluate the system that God has laid out for you, does it make sense as the way it is being taught to you? And also, what part of the Bible do you believe is the Word of God, and what part of the Bible do you believe is not necessarily the Word of God? Because I guarantee you there are parts of the Bible that you do not uphold, that you do not hold yourself to. And the parts of the Bible that you're holding on to, you just have to wonder, well, why? Why is that? Why, is, why those parts and why not the other parts? And again, what I would employ people to do and what I've seen a lot of Christians do in my lifetime, they will search their hearts, they will search love, and they will come to the conclusion that, of course, LGBTQ people are not sinning that they are not against God. These are good people living good lives, doing good things, raising good children, contributing to society. What could possibly be wrong with them? Now, if you have an answer to that question and you are very sure of it, then okay, I disagree with you, but I have no, I have no empirical data on the word of God. I have no connection to the word of God. No one does. But that's what I'm going to say. 
<laughs> so anxious Emma, what what I'm going to tell you is so well, but you're asking a different question. What I, you're answering is, um, you know, is there? You say, is there room for me to be kind, to have dignity to all people, and to still disagree with them? And what I'll say is no. Given your belief system, you cannot be. You can act kind, but you're not being kind. You're not think. You're not embodying a kind person. Because you, you say in this email, I disagree with their lifestyle. I disagree with them. You even have that phrase, I still disagree with them. That, those are your words. You disagree with them. You and your people disagree with them. That's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting to, to hear that. That doesn't sound kind to me. That doesn't sound like listening to me. Now, I know that you've been taught something. You did not emerge from the womb with this notion that LGBTQ people were disagreeable, <laughs> that their quote-unquote lifestyle. And by the way, I just want to point out this, this word lifestyle as a microaggression because we don't call it the heterosexual lifestyle. We don't call it the, the cisgender lifestyle, right? We, call it, we only call it a lifestyle when we're trying to categorize it and demean it as something that is other. It's a, you know, there's the normal way of living. And then there's this weird lifestyle that's, that's adjacent to the normal good way of living. It's not a lifestyle. You're not, degree, you're not disagreeing with a lifestyle. As you said in this final sentence, you're disagreeing with them. <laughs> you're disagreeing with who they are as a human being, as perhaps God made them, right? Now, again, I'm not going to beat you up, Anxious Emma. Um, I have close people in my life who believe what you believe. And what I find is the further people go down a, a road of enlightenment, the faster they shed these notions. I, I'll tell you from anecdotal experience, I've never seen your this belief system that you have it sounds like you're in a transition phase i'll tell you anxious emma because you you sound to be like it it sounds like you're struggling with something and maybe you're struggling with the last vestiges of the propaganda that has been pumped into your head that lgbtq people are living a disagreeable lifestyle maybe you know by you asking me uh, i'm i'm guessing anxious emma that you knew that i was gonna slam you a little bit <laughs> because uh, I've never said anything in this podcast that would support any notion that LGBTQ people are living on a disagreeable lifestyle. So I'm guessing that you're at a transition. I'd like to think you're at a transition. And in my, in my anecdotal experience, and I've seen hundreds of people go through this, I've never seen someone as they learn, as they listen, as they educate themselves, I've never seen a, I've never seen a single person retain those viewpoints. Those I'm going to call it bigoted viewpoint. And uh, so you know, now I know some people say, "Look, I'm not going to treat him badly." I'm not. I'm you know, as you say, anxious Emma, you're like, my desire is to fight for their rights. I want to fight for their rights. I want to listen to them. I want to use language that makes them feel comfortable. I want to treat them with dignity, because that's the right thing to do. And yeah, you know, yeah, that's, that's, that's great. I'm glad. But imagine if we did this about a different group of people, Emma, 
Imagine if we said, well, being black is wrong. I disagree with black people. Or I disagree with, uh, uh, you know, foreigners. <laughs> or, or I just disagree with them. I don't like their lifestyle. Well, you know, it, 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 that's, that's, if, it, to, you can't treat someone with respect and believe such a disrespectful thing. Such a discounting thing, because to your uh, particular version of reality, the only way for them to become agreeable to you is for them to not be who they are. A gay person is gay. (laughs) A bisexual person is bisexual. They don't choose to be bisexual. A trans person is trans. And the, the, the point that I'll, that I'll give to prove this is that people literally get murdered for coming out of the closet. And people literally get fired from jobs or denied jobs or get thrown out of their church or get thrown out of their families. Who wants that? That's why people stay in the closet. There's no closet for heterosexuality. There's no closet for cisgender people. Why? Because cisgender heterosexual people don't worry about identifying themselves as such because there's no consequence really. To come out of the closet to be LGBTQ, everyone knows there are tremendous consequences. And so why would they put themselves through that if not for the reason that that's who they are? They're doing it because they have no choice. It's who they are. How else are they supposed to live? If they had a choice, and believe me, most LGBTQ people have a vast period of, of time where they wish they could change. When a 13-year-old realizes, oh my God, I'm trans, or a 22 realizes, oh my God, I'm bisexual, there is almost always a phase that could last for decades sometimes where the person is trying to wish it away. They don't want it to happen often. They, they know that life would be easier if it wasn't this way, if they weren't that way. So why would they put them, why, why would they put themselves through so much heartache and danger and mistreatment if it wasn't because that's the way God made them? But again, Maybe that doesn't compel you and you're free to think how you think. But I will tell you, I'm trying to convince you, Emma, I would like to believe you're in a transition zone and I would like to push you along your way that you're seemingly already on. Let me know if you're, if, if that's, if that's true. Let's go on to another email. This is another Christian email. I'm getting a lot of Christian emails lately. I don't know why. Uh, I, anonymous patron writes in, I have just watched one of your videos on porn addiction and have some questions on it. I hold Christian values and I want to rid myself of this behavior. I am afraid that it would ruin my sex life in reality with my fiance in the future. From the context of Christianity, we are always told to abstain from sex of any form and to enjoy sex in the right and wholesome way. Is there a clinical explanation for this? End of email. 
Okay. Well, I don't have time to go into all the details that I that I would want to on this, but let me just sort of say some of the highlights. So again, there are different Christians who have different beliefs about pornography and masturbation. Some some sects, some groups of Christians will believe that porn, watching pornography is a sin, and some will not. Some will believe that masturbation is a sin, and some will not. So I just want to point out that it's not that, you know, Christian Christianity is not a monolith. Now, I know that some uh, who will disagree will will say like, well, those aren't real Christians. Well, you know, I suppose that's another belief that you can debate, but uh, I just want to point that out. Another thing here that you say is that I, you say, I don't want, you know, I'm afraid that watching porn and I'm, I'm assuming masturbation will ruin my sex life with, with my fiance in the future. This is propaganda that is often put forth by anti-porn, anti-masturbation movements. For the vast majority of people, looking at porn and masturbating does not negatively affect sex with partners. It can, for sure. You know, it can make you believe that sex is a certain way. It can make it so that you actually have a hard time being sexually aroused by an in-person partner. But these cases are rare. When you look at the statistics, virtually essentially almost everyone especially today looks at porn at some point and masturbates some people do it often with a, with a, a good percentage of people doing it often uh, including women if if you're not aware and so this notion that it somehow is this horrible thing for your sex life is just not supported by the evidence it can be for sure and case by case basis, you know, we have to watch out for that and, and we have to educate people on looking for the signs in the same way that alcohol, uh, most people drink alcohol, but it only becomes a problem for a percentage of people. And so we need to educate people like alcohol isn't inherently terrible, but here are the signs that you might be developing a problem. It's the same with pornography and masturbation. The other thing that you say is you know, from the context of Christianity, we're always told to abstain from sex of any form and to enjoy sex in the right and wholesome way. So you put right and wholesome in quotes, which I appreciate because I think what you're saying is like, well, it's, you know, right and wholesome is a debatable term. And yeah, it's a total social construction. Uh, For people who live in the sex positivity world, they will say that it's completely right and wholesome and wonderful to self-pleasure and and look at ethical porn. And some people will say like, oh, you know, porn porn is, uh, someone emailed me because I I mentioned something about pornography. I I don't know what, because I don't feel like I talk about it that often, but they were upset that I had said something like that there's nothing wrong with looking at porn or something like that. And yeah, pornography has problems with it for sure, but it's not all a problem. There are ethical pornography producers, meaning that they don't exploit, they don't uh, mistreat anyone. They try to depict sex in a sex-positive manner. And so there's ethical porn out there, and there's a spectrum of of exploitation and horribleness. And certainly we can point to examples of pornography being produced in ex- some of the most horrific exploitation uh, circumstances we we could imagine. So 
there's that. But porn as a as a thing uh, has a has a variety of of things to it, and and part of the reason why pornography has traditionally been pretty exploitative uh, to a certain degree is that we have made it illegal to produce and so in a lot of areas and so people have to resort to crime in order to to, to produce it and so if we uh, bring it up to legal standards and we regulate it then we can actually help the you know the performers and that sort of thing anyway the point is is that uh, I just want to point that out. And and this isn't really my area. I, I'm not an expert in this research area. And so, um, it, you know, the way I talk will reveal some of that. But anyway, in terms of the, the industry, you know, I know a lot about pornography and masturbation and sexuality when it comes to humans because clients have come to me with this issue. Um, research also has shown that pornography can actually help people. There are There are data that demonstrate that People who look at pornography can learn good things about pornography. It can destigmatize sexuality for a lot of people. I am amazed that in 2020, I still come across teenagers and, and young adults who have extremely stigmatized viewpoints of sexuality that wasn't induced by religion. It just came from society. So we we have a long way to go to move towards sex positivity, whether you believe that uh, you know, sex before marriage or pornography is a is a sin or not. Um, at the very least, even if we're looking at sex after marriage, there are a lot of people walking around with extremely sex negative notions that have been given to us by society, um, including like women shouldn't enjoy sex, these kinds of things, or that your genitals are disgusting. These kinds, of, you know, it's just really awful what what we do to ourselves as a society. So. So pornography can sometimes help with that. It can sometimes harm that. But research has shown that some people actually benefit from from viewing porn, which might be a shocker to you, but that's what empirical science will find. Uh, now, to, to, to get to your um, sort of the core of what you're talking about here is like, well, I'm a Christian and I believe that, well, you're not really saying this when I really look and see. Um, I have, I've just, see, I hold Christian values and I want to rid myself of this behavior. I'm afraid it's going to ruin my sex life. Um, I'm told, I, we're always told to abstain from sex of any form and to enjoy the sex in the right and wholesome way. Is there a clinical explanation for this? So similar to Emma, I wonder if you're in a transition point and because I'm guessing that you know how I'm going to answer this question. And so by the sheer fact you're asking me, because I'm guessing you didn't think I was going to say, yeah, sex is bad, okay? <laughs> I'm pretty sure you, d- you didn't think I was going to say that. So by the sheer fact you're asking me about this, I wonder what that says about you and your transition and your struggle with this notion. And again, I just want to say there are plenty of Christians who uh, follow all the other Christian rules and believe in sex positivity, and believe that porn's fine, and believe even that sex before marriage is fine, and believe that LGBTQ people are fine, <laughs> um, and that a lot of these notions are just don't really fit in in today's society anymore. Like, for example, um, it in a certain way, uh, if we sort of break down, because uh, if you really study Christianity or any religion, Juda- Judaism included, you will find that the religion emerged out of a society, right? And the society often would 
it, one way of looking at it is they would infuse laws into the religion to get people to follow the, the laws because they didn't really have a system of government that, that we do today that uh, upholds laws. And so they needed God, they needed the fear of God to govern people's behavior. So one way of looking at it is they would infuse the laws of the land in, into the religion. Or another way of looking at it is that religion was just an emerging system of governing society. And that doesn't have any basis in reality at, at all, right? But, you know, if you're a Christian, you, you, you want to believe in God. And so, you know, we'll stick with the infusion idea. And so uh, back in the day before you had birth control back when you might have violence if someone were to get pregnant outside of marriage or murder and strife and questions about lineage and these kinds of things, it makes sense that you would really want to be buttoned up about sexuality because so many bad things would happen when people had sex before marriage or when they thought about their neighbor's wife, that kind of thing. But in today's world, when you when you just look at the empirical science, you find that people can live totally wonderful lives, looking at porn occasionally and masturbating occasionally and having sex before marriage. Their life isn't negatively impacted uh, as a rule. There can be bad things that can happen, sure, but there also can be bad things that can happen if you wait until marriage to have sex. And so... Uh, so we might look at it that way. We might look at Christianity like, well, the Christianity of 2,500 years ago, what needed to infuse a different set of, or emphasizing a different set of guidance upon society in, 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 in term, in, uh, so as to create harmony that doesn't really apply today. Um, so, but that's just a way of looking at it. Some Christians will do that kind of, uh, philosophical expo- ex- historical expo- exploration and some won't and so that's fine you know it, it, it's your christianity you're you're free to define it as you will the other thing that you say is you know you you want to rid yourself and i'm guessing that you are looking at porn and masturbating and you, you don't like that and you're, you're trying to rid yourself of it well this is a real complicated thing i've actually had clients who have come to me with this issue they have come to me and, and with this exact same issue. Either it was Christianity or it was their spouse. And, you know, so Christianity meaning that they felt it was sinning against God to, to look at porn and, and masturbate. And they would come to me to help them to curb that behavior or end it. Or they were getting caught by their spouse occasionally looking at porn and masturbating and their spouse considered it to be cheating, which is fine if, if that's what their point of view is. Again, it's not the only point of view, but everyone is entitled to their point of view. Now, it's one of those things that I would talk about in the beginning of dating, by the way, because that could be a deal breaker. It's not something you want to spring on someone five years into marriage. But but anyway, so uh, people would come to me with this. And uh, I tell you, like, uh, as a human being, I would be like, huh, uh, what? this doesn't seem like the sort of therapy that I signed up to provide. But but I'm a collaborative, open-minded person, and so I would work on it with them. But at the same time, I would talk with them about sex positivity. Because a lot of times these notions come out of sex negativity. And when you really study the social constructions around sex positivity and sex 
negativity because we are such a sex negative culture. I mean, it's just so sex negative. It is just awful. The, the example that I always give that sometimes triggers people, and I'll provide maybe a full explanation. Well, maybe I won't do it because it sometimes triggers people. I'll, I'll, I'll relent. <laughs> but my point is, is that we, we live in a, a, a society that, that looks at a lot of things that are natural and good for humans to think and do as gross and nasty and dirty and deplorable and sinning and um, you know, perverted and these kinds of things. Now, can things be perverted? Can things be deplorable? Absolutely. There are horrific things that people can do with sexuality, for sure. But so much of our sexuality has to be hidden and suppressed and shamed. And I mean, I just can't tell you how many people, how many clients I talk to who just have tremendous shame around sex. So when uh, so I will talk about that with the clients who came to me to rid themselves of their quote unquote porn addiction. And I want to be clear that when we use the word porn addiction, what we're talking about or masturbation addiction, what we're talking about typically is someone who stays home from work to look at porn and masturbate 15 times a day or someone who uh, has a tr- has a tremendous itch to masturbate while they're in the middle of a movie theater, and they just they can't. It, it it's like they're a meth addict that needs to get their next fix. What porn addiction is not the term is not applied to is someone who has an urge to self pleasure once a once a week, and because they feel lonely or or they just feel like they want a good time by themselves and it's midnight and their spouse is asleep or something. You know, these aren't typically what we're going to call porn addiction. What what I would call it is a sexual preference, <laughs> uh, typically. But, you know, people are free to use addiction because, clinically speaking, it's a pretty amorphous term. But anyway, yeah, so I would t- I would work with clients on this and... Uh, and other related issues like this. And uh, what I would do is I would just really provide context and say, so just let you know, there's a possibility that the, the your goal in therapy is related to a social construction that maybe you want to shed. I'm not going to force you to do that, but let me just throw some stuff out there. And a lot of times it wouldn't work, you know, I, I, meaning that the client would retain their viewpoint and then I'd say, okay, well, you've proven it to me. You're you're steadfast in your belief system, and I, uh, you know, I, 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 um, I can respect that. Okay, so you want to work on how to reduce your masturbation and porn and porn looking, and what we when we do all the things I would do of any compulsion management, which would be to uh, learn triggers to manage triggers, to talk about it often, maybe go to a support group to uh, have other ways of soothing yourself that are acceptable to you that would could be replace, you know, replacing behaviors like actually having sex with your spouse or um, running around the block or whatever it is. And, and we'd work on that and, you know, we, we would find success um, and that's fine. You know, I'm a collaborative therapist and, and I worked on that with people anyway. So talked about a lot of things today. 
why don't you let me know what you think? If you're on YouTube, comment below. And if you are not, you can go to psychologyinstitute.com, click the contact button, and that will directly email me, and I will read your email. Let me know what you think. Uh, I, I particularly, you know, I guess this the the most interesting question that I can think of to ask. What I'm interested in hearing is, have you, as a Christian, gone through some of these transitions? Have you transitioned from someone who believed that gay people were living a distasteful lifestyle and that they were wrong? Um, that you know, did you disagree with LGBTQ people? And did you move through a transition? Did you retain your Christianity? How did that work for you? Maybe I'll include some of your, you know, statements on a future podcast. I don't know. Anyway, everyone out there, uh, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.